there were a lot of projects popping up, especially in 2017, 2018, where people wanted to adopt the blockchain because it seemed sexy and it seemed cool, and without thinking about what that means. Welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This time, Christopher Starke and myself, Niels Köbis, interview Franz von Weizsäcker and Niklas Kossoff. Franz von Weizsäcker is at the GIZ, the German Corporation for International Cooperation, and works at the Blockchain Lab in Berlin. Niklas Kossoff is at the Heritage School of Governance in Berlin, and the two are experts in how to use new technologies, in particular distributed ledger technology and blockchain, to fight corruption. If you don't know how distributed ledger technology works, or how exactly blockchain works, don't worry. We provide some information in the interview itself, and we have provided further readings in the show notes. The interview outlines the potential, but also the challenges of using such new technologies. And towards the end, we discuss research ideas and research pathways for aiding efforts to use blockchain and other new technologies in the fight corruption. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of Kickback. Today we are joined by Franz von Weizsäcker and Niklas Kossoff and we will be talking about new technologies in the fight against corruption and we'll primarily focus on blockchain. But before we dive into the topic, I would like you to maybe quickly introduce how you came to the topic. For example, Franz, from what I figured, you come from a computer science background. How did you become interested in the intersection between corruption and then the same also uh, for Niklas, who comes from a different direction, coming from political science. Yes, so my background is computer science. And in fact, back then already, my university, the Berlin University of Technology, they had a focal area of development informatics, like uh, applied computer science in a development cooperation context. We had practical projects in Afghanistan. And from there, I joined GIZ. And I always noticed that it is a cross-cutting issue Uh, having digitalization all across the sectors of international cooperation and development. And of course, in uh, the particular field of anti-corruption, it has quite a relevance in the aspects of transparency, accountability, and participation mechanisms. Great. Thanks for that intro. Let's maybe move to you, Niklas. I remember meeting you first a while ago at a core sitting in Berlin. Must have been, what is it, three or four years ago? And ever since then, I mean, we uh, our paths have crossed several times. I think the last time we met were, was in uh, in Kiev at the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Forum. And you've been publishing on this topic that we want to talk about a bit more, the well, ICTs in general and blockchain. How did you get interested in that? So um, basically, I started studying corruption, I think, 10 years ago already um, in my undergrad because I was uh, studying politics and Russian and um, was taking a course in Russian politics and society with Aliona Ledyanova, who you will also know, um, who's a professor at University College London, and um, then got interested in like informal practices and in corruption. And when I continued studying for my master's, I worked with Aline Mongepipidi, And all during this time, I was already interested in the, um, not only in corruption, but also in the effects that um, 
internet and digital technologies have on societies and on politics. And then um, while writing my PhD thesis, I put those two interests together and just looked at how you can use digital tools in fighting corruption. Great, thank you. Um, and Niklas, you just published a literature review on the role of ICTs in the fight against corruption. So could you maybe briefly outline what ICTs are and what you learned from reading all of those papers on the topic? Yeah, I mean, um, ICTs is this like very clumsy term, which stands for like information and communication technology, right? So um, basically everything that connects you with other people. I tend to also speak about digital tools and digitalization in um, anti-corruption. And um, I don't know, the problem with ICTs and anti-corruption is that many people see it sort of as a panacea, so, right? So many people try to use a technology and then see it as the answer to, uh, to a problem. But ICT is interesting to me because it can play a very specific role. Like what Franz already said, what got him interested in is this like element of transparency and citizen engagement. I think that's a big part of ICT. Once people have access to internet media and have access to digital technology, they can make a lot out of it and they can use it. What is interesting about the fight against corruption, I think, is that um, these technologies and digital technologies can sort of invigorate the fight against corruption. They often develop bottom-up from uh, civil society actors and then later sort of adopted by the government. Um, they go in different directions. You have very simple digitalization of government work, but also um, very elaborate tools like blockchain technology that are sort of like more back-end to specific tools. Uh, you already had last week actually in your podcast this example of Irio Muskop who had the um Operação Serenato da Mor uh, using data right to discover fraud in the Brazilian Senate and that I think is a super interesting example because prior to the introduction of ICT and basically the digitalization of this type of data and the publication of this type of data in a machine readable format you would have never been able to access this type of data and analyze it right you would have never been able to take all this information and actually look through it to find a pattern of fraud. But Irio and his team were able to do that. And they did that, you know, bottom up. They just took the data, analyzed it, built a bot to do that automatically. And then also just bring this directly to the public and to uh, the senators involved. And likewise, for example, um, one project I looked into in particular was is the, um, the Prozoro e-procurement platform in Ukraine, right? Procurement is an area of government that is always problematic with regards to corruption, right? Because a lot of government money is spent. And after the revolution in Ukraine in 2014, people realized that and civil society actors wanted to introduce reforms to reform procurement. And rather than relying on the government to introduce reforms, they said, we're just going to build a pilot, an e-procurement pilot, to show how we can use this digitally, um, record the data much better, make it more accessible, get more more companies to bid on procurement tenders. And only after they had developed the tender, they cooperated with the government to also implement that and implement it not only in like some ministries, but nationwide. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I hope we will uh, be able to go into a bit more detail about these examples, but maybe to, to set the stage, I think it would be very useful if you, Franz, could maybe briefly summarize for maybe a lay audience First of what uh, distributed ledger technology is, and in particular blockchain, because I think that would allow us to then sort of show how it can be used in the fight against corruption. So in fact, uh, about two and a half years ago, we found it inside here that the blockchain lab to investigate what sort of uh, qualities uh, that these distributed ledgers would have are suitable and useful 
in the context of international development projects. And we shifted a bit our focus. In the very beginning, we, we looked at the very narrow focus of blockchain or distributed ledger technologies. And uh, more and more, we discovered that it, it makes a lot of sense to take the user-centered perspective, to, to look at the individual use cases and uh, combine a variety of uh, technical solutions, whatever is most suitable for the actual use case uh, in order to solve it. So rather than coming with a solution looking for the problem, uh, we do it the other way around, which makes much more sense, of course. And uh, taking it from there, the aspect, the quality that we discovered that has most added value of blockchain in particular is, is the factor of being immutable, uh, being decentralized, of introducing a form of an accountability mechanism. And while generally speaking, as a computer scientist, I would say it fulfills mostly what a database can do anyways. But the difference that there is no central administration of that database. So there is no, no single point of entry where you could say uh, one person is empowered to manipulate the content of that database. And of course, that has several advantages and as well as well disadvantages it's a bit harder to manage but at the same time it has the advantage of being immutable um, in the sense when you want to create a, a form of a transparency and accountability mechanism that immutability can play a huge role if you consider that the authority managing a centralized database could be corrupted to some degree or at the technical level the the system administrator of that database could be corrupted in, in some way and, and that would exclude that uh, attack vector. Um, so generally speaking, it's a, it's a form of a decentralized database architecture. There are several different architectures of uh, blockchain one could mention in that context. Either you have a fully distributed architecture where any user of the internet basically has the same rights that what you call a permissionless blockchain, like the one in Bitcoin or Ethereum, or uh, you have a more like a curated set of users. In that case, you would talk about a consortium blockchain and there the decision about the content of that database or that blockchain uh, would be decided upon as a consensus of the participants of that club, so to speak. Great. There's so much I would like to go into detail, but maybe taking a step back first, if uh, I have never heard of this technology, like how could you very briefly explain technically what's new about it? How, how does it work? So if, if we are based on the assumption that it's, it fulfills roughly the, the, the functionality of a database. So basically, you have uh, data blocks, data sets. In the example of Bitcoin, that is sets of transactions of uh, Bitcoin uh, sort of cryptocurrency or crypto coins that are being transferred from one wallet to the other. But in principle, you could uh, add any sort of data sets into these packages, into these blocks. And then uh, you could imagine it's, it's, it's like putting a stamp onto that block uh, while, you, while you file it onto a wide network of maybe thousands or even hundreds of thousands of different computers worldwide. And uh, that uh, it, it will be, you have a sort of a verification code, a hash code that is confirming that this is a valid block. Um, so this is uh, done in, in the form of a cryptographic consensus. And uh, maybe you've heard about uh, the energy consumption of that. It's basically people are competing and calculating a certain, uh, solving a certain mathematical formula, a very complex one. That's why it's uh, taking so much uh, computation time. And the first one to solve that formula is then gets the authority to write the next block. I mean, that's a technical detail. It results into the, the blockchain having a mechanism of getting rid of the centralized 
uh, database administrator aspect that normally a database has, and that way it cannot be controlled by one entity. So, so that's that's sort of the the difference you have between a database architecture and that uh, distributed uh, blockchain architecture. And I think um, one aspect to mention here is maybe trust, because like often like the blockchain is compared to a machine creating trust between different actors who are involved in the system because in the end like if you rely on one person or one entity to deal with the data that you're working on right or to deal with the ledger that you're writing in you already have trust in this person or in this institution but if you don't have this trust you can create a system where everybody is sort of hosting it everybody has the same responsibility and so nobody can control it as Franz said right and so It is an, a system that can create trust between different actors who have a reason to not trust each other. I remember in the early days, uh, there, was a, there was an article about the blockchain with even the title, the uh, article in The Economist, titling the blockchain as being a trust machine. And now we not need to look um, into the detail what does trust actually mean, because trust has many different dimensions. So we can trust very much blockchain to solve the trust aspect of data integrity. That's one aspect of trust. So once something is written into the blockchain, it's very likely to remain in there, and it's extremely hard to manipulate whatever has been written into the Bitcoin blockchain. However, it does not guarantee what data comes into that blockchain. So, so basically, if that data source is not trustable, that's a different aspect of, of trust uh, that uh, this technology cannot solve. So you need to really make sure to uh, differentiate the view on, on uh, which aspects of trust uh, you, you're talking about. So some refer to uh, this issue as being the garbage in, garbage out problem. That is easy to solve for the transaction of crypto coins because there your trust is established basically by the person who possesses the, the private signature to transfer bitcoins from one wallet to the other. That is automatically the authorized person to, to be able to transfer the crypto coins. But the trust in other data sets is much harder to, to establish because you cannot rely on this trust uh, being available through, the, through having a, a private signature. Yeah, this is so interesting because speaking of these different dimensions of trust, I mean, trust is such a positively uh, connoted word in general, but of course it also exists within very informal networks that use it for, say, bad means. Yeah, for example, there are probably very good ways how to use this technology, maybe to curb corruption. But in a previous interview that we had with Paul Haywood, for example, he also mentioned blockchain as a possibility to facilitate corruption, which is also probably deeply embedded in that technology itself is quite secure. But you could also probably use it for, let's say, money laundering. If I was a money launderer, I would probably not use Bitcoin. I would probably use the traditional way of, of a suitcase with cash. Luckily, I'm not in that situation. But the whatever is on the public blockchain of Bitcoin is completely transparent to the entire world. Uh, you can trace and track each and every transaction. However, you don't always have the attributability of the wallet towards the person. So there is a rough estimate that uh, around about 90% of the existing Bitcoin wallets, it's actually known to whom they belong to. Also because more and more crypto exchanges are having KYC processes. And also because you can triangulate other data sources uh, with, with the content of the Bitcoin blockchain. So therefore, it's probably not, uh, not a good tool to do money laundry. Uh, just because it's uh, way too transparent. There's a couple of other 
technical alternatives like Monero or, or Zcash uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, which might be slightly more suitable. But yeah, I think it's it's not yet evident that this is being widely used and the traditional way of, of using cash uh, seems to be still quite active. One aspect is you cannot stop a transaction on a public ledger because the traditional banking system always has a means to intercept fraudulent transactions. And basically the clearing and settlement mechanisms has some, some, uh, some risk management. And if there is suspicious transaction that might be delayed before the actual transaction is settled, this mechanism does not exist um, in, the, in the world of, of Bitcoin and blockchain. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, like, I don't know, when I started looking at blockchain as an anti-corruption tool, many people like said that and told me it's like, look, but Bitcoin is used for corrupt activities, right? Like Bitcoin is used for trading drugs and for, for like essentially illicit money flows. But that, so is cash. The most important technology for illicit financial flows is cash. And we never question the usability of cash in this context. And that was always weird to me because yes, there were these cases and there were lots of cases uncovered. But as Fran said, it's really silly to go on a blockchain if you want an untraceable money flow. It's really, really hard to completely anonymize money flows. And especially at this, at one point, you will want to transfer that money back into cash or back into usable, you know, offline money. And that is really difficult as well, if you want your, your name to stay out of it. And the thing with the, um, with the blockchain or with the distributed ledger is that this data that is written, so these, data, these money transactions, they are written into an immutable ledger. So even if you, for some reason, can't follow up on these trails now, if you gather more data, you can probably do that in a few years. And this data will stay out there. There's a second uh, scenario of, of fraud or a set of scenarios of fraud uh, associated to Bitcoin blockchain, which is around the investments into cryptocurrencies. So basically, there has been a lot of startups. This was booming in, in the year of 2017 uh, that have been funding their business by issuing a new crypto coin. And by marketing this crypto coin in a way, so if you, you do investor marketing uh, to a wide audience of sort of crowd investment into that new coin, which had in many cases the form of a snowball or Ponzi scheme, basically, um, which is, um, well, outright illegal. It's a way to manipulate uh, people into, lure them into investing into something with the expectation that the value uh, will go up uh, amazingly. And uh, a lot of the investments have not been based much on actual business fundamentals, uh, but rather on, on overblown expectations fueled by marketing. So that's, that's maybe another form of, of fraud that is quite common in the ecosystem. Yeah, I want to pick up on a few things you said. Uh, first off, I, I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned that cash is one of the biggest facilitators of money laundering. And it's still a bit puzzling to me that we have a 500 euro note, which a lot of people that are into money laundering say would be a very practical solution to actually make it somewhat more difficult to launder money. Because hardly anyone in daily life uses such uh, large notes. So sometimes the solutions to these problems might not be necessarily digital, but <laughs> very old school in that sense. Uh, nonetheless, I want to um, maybe shift gears towards the positive uses of such technologies. I mean, there's uh, we, we researched a bit. We found, for example, that in the Tanzanian government, uh, Bitcoin and, and blockchain has been used to basically weed out ghost workers. So it can actually help to identify people that are on the payroll, but that actually don't exist. 
Um, Nicholas, you mentioned Ukraine as an example. Would you like to share each of you maybe one example which, which you feel is very promising? Could we maybe start with you, Nicholas, and then uh, shift to you, Franz, of just a promising example how to use Bitcoin in the fight against corruption? Um, yes, I mean, there's one example which I wrote about in a couple of papers. That would be the True Budget Project from the KW, so the, uh, the Germans of Development Bank. They actually put together a very clever distributed ledger platform um, that ties in different partners in development financing. So basically, as you can imagine, when you finance development projects, there are many parallel systems. So one donor government or donor organization has a different system to keeping track of money than a recipient country or this recipient ministry or whoever um, receives, them, receives the money. And again, if you're a recipient country, you deal with many different donors. So uh, different donors from one countryside, from different countries, um, international organizations, and they all have different systems. And the idea behind the True Budget Project is basically to tie all these actors that work on specific projects into one system and do that by creating a distributed ledger that is underlying the system. So the other problem would be, let's say, you say, you tell everyone to get onto one system, right? The question is who would host that or who would be responsible for this? But if you create a distributed ledger, you can actually get everybody onto this system without complete ownership in one hand. And that is the solution they created is uh, is pretty good. It's an open source solution, so you can adapt it very easily to Uh, different contexts. They already have like uh, piloted that I think in two uh, contexts. So with the Brazilian Economic and Social Development Bank, which has a fund that is uh, the Amazon fund fighting deforestation, and they now using the True Budget Project to to distribute money from this fund and also to work with different donors who uh, donate to the fund. Um, they've also been using it in together with the Ministry of Finance in Burkina Faso, basically um, in the implementation of donor projects. So donors send money to the ministry that then gets passed on to projects that are implemented on the ground. And the system is just used to keep track of it. Now, the question is like, is this an area where we see a lot of corruption? I mean, of course not, right? Like you can ask anyone who's involved, they will not tell you there is corruption. And I think this is not a per se issue because I don't think blockchain can actually be an answer to corruption, but it can be an answer to corruption risks. And anywhere where you have like, you know, big money flows, be, be it in aid or be it in other contexts, you will have corruption risks, right? Because of shoddy paperwork, because of working processes which are unclear, and this gets addressed through this, through this project. So it's, an, it's a means to address corruption risks, but also mainly a means to speed up processes, to facilitate processes and exchanges between different partners, to make things just more efficient. So the key benefit uh, I've seen that was used in practical projects of the blockchain is beyond cryptocurrencies, is the aspect of uh, transparency and immutability of, of the records. And one particular field of application that uh, looks very useful and promising to me is digital maintaining digital credentials on a blockchain. One example project that we are doing now with a partner in Asia is called Simio Innotech, is a validation platform for education credentials. In principle, that architecture can be used for any sort of credentials. And the mechanism here is in our open source project that once education credential, like a test, has been taken, and the uh, exam results uh, are then handed over in a digital form 
to the to the person that is tested and also made available uh, digitally as a, as a link. And uh, on the public ledger, in this case, it's the Ethereum blockchain, uh, we would record an hash, like a sort of a checksum of, of that exam result uh, that would allow anybody who receives that digital credential to validate the authenticity based on the digital signature that has been issued by the testing organization and the timestamp or the, the hash code that you find on the public ledger. And this allows you to have a transparent record on the validity of, of certain credentials. Um, so that's a, that's a useful application. Another thing in the more closely linked to big uh, issues of anti-corruption is in public procurement. Um, and the mechanism is quite a similar one. It's because one of the some of the core steps in the public procurement process are uh, issuing the tender, like uh, putting it to the public, and then receiving questions and receiving uh, offers from from participating companies. And uh, these steps, these documents that are made made uh, transparent, um, publicized, uh, this is all recorded, including, for example how much was the value of the bid of one company and the other one so that they could not later on change the bid value in order to win the tender if maybe a community company has offered uh, the same at a lower price. So so that's uh, this is being implemented, I believe, in Chile and, and Sweden and a couple of other countries. So that's a public procurement mechanism that just works. It does not solve all the corruption issues in, in the process of public procurement. There's so many attack vectors addressed to that, but one specific uh, that you could manipulate the data in the bidding process from both sides, from the tendering side and the bidding side, that particular integrity risk is addressed. It's interesting. It uh, basically makes it at least a step more difficult because sort of after the fact, manipulation is more difficult to do. I think that also relates to the example that uh, Nicholas mentioned from Ukraine with Prozoro, the success stories in, in that regard. What, what kind of practical challenges do you see in basically convincing organizations to adopt such new technologies? Do you feel like there are similar problems that also existed, for example, in the introduction of the Corona app in Germany, where it took much longer to actually introduce it because there were privacy concerns and the solution that they opted for has some similarities to the structures that you describe, right? Like there is no, not one central authority storing the data which to some extent uh, alleviates the, the concerns. Maybe, Nicholas, first, would you like to comment on that? Um, sort of the practical challenges to convince maybe also people to adopt new technologies, whether these are citizens or donor organizations or any other organizations. I mean, I think the biggest challenge is, of course, like people have to change their ways, right? Like people have been doing certain processes or certain, well, I don't know. They have been doing administrative processes since years in one way and they would sometimes need to adjust but i think sometimes the question is a bit wrong like like how do you get an organization to adopt a blockchain a blockchain application you don't or, and you shouldn't right it's like what you should do is you should go to an organization look at what their problem is uh, analyze the problem see what issues come up there like if it's something that is related to processes to like bad paperwork to a lack of trust between actors and is it a process that involves many different actors tying it from a different side then maybe blockchain is a solution then you can adapt it 
I think with blockchain, actually, the problem was the other way around. Like there were a lot of projects popping up, especially in 2017, 2018, where people wanted to adopt the blockchain because it seemed sexy and it seemed cool um, without thinking about what that means. At the same time, what what you also was also important to keep in mind is that in many ways, blockchain, as Franz already described, is just a database, right? It's a backend. There's one often cited project, which is a building block project by the World Food Program, which is essentially a blockchain program to support the distribution of food vouchers in Jordanian refugee camps. These food vouchers were already before that uh, distributed digitally, right? Or like not in sort of not as cash-based, but basically on digital money accounts. Um, and people had, went to supermarkets identified with iris scans, which is problematic from a privacy perspective, but has nothing to do with the blockchain project. Um, they identified with iris scans, and then the supermarket would note down their, trans their transaction and get a bank transfer from the World Food Program, more or less, very simply explained. What they did, they just exchanged the backend to a blockchain backend, then had a trustworthy system to write on to collect all the transactions together and then on a regular basis do collected transactions through supermarkets. That saved the World Food Program, I think at some point, $40,000 a month just on transaction fees. And that was made possible through the backend. Now the question is, did they need a blockchain for that? No. They could have done that with a simple, secure, distributed database. But now that they actually introduced the blockchain there, they could now very easily get a different actor on board. Like they cooperated with UN Women also use some of their cash-based transfer uh, programs. And they very easily could just bring them on board with the blockchain program and have them work together on the same database. And for that, it's really helpful. And um, yeah, with regards to the Corona app, yes, the decentralization aspect is the same. And decentralization here is used to minimize uh, data vulnerabilities and uh, minimize privacy violations. That is something that can be an aspect of a blockchain project as well. But I think another aspect, when you look at the German Corona app, why in the end it was successful is that it was open source. So the, the source code, while it was developed, was continuously published on GitHub and, on, um, and documented by the project partners. And the digital civil society was able to go through this code and suggest uh, corrections, suggest improvements, uh, or to criticize some, some aspects. And by this, they together basically developed uh, an app that nobody was able to criticize once it came out. And I think that is something that many actors, when they develop also blockchain projects, keep in mind, right? They, if they do a good development and if they you develop something that they want to be adapted later on, they do it open source and in a way that the source code can be edited and also improved. What we see in the blockchain ecosystem is there is a lot of investor marketing using the fancy word blockchain. And this has a positive and a negative aspect. The positive aspect is you find just very innovative companies with amazing ideas, lots of creativity and great staff, great software developers that do innovative projects. On the negative side of it, you, it produces a lot of projects that start with a solution rather than starting with a thorough understanding of the problem. And uh, looking at uh, anti-corruption, uh, a thorough understanding of the problem would need to take into account all the different aspects of transparency, accountability, participation, and integrity, basically the TAPI principles. And uh, if we take the example, let's say we, we take a public sector body uh, and uh, we want to do anti-corruption, in many cases, the most effective mechanism to combat anti-corruption is to make sure that uh, corrupt people are losing their jobs. 
uh, basically that's show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. That's the most effective incentive in many cases uh, to stop corruption if they lose their job. So this is all about integrity in the work and um, many of the technical solutions cannot really address that problem if you don't have a functioning uh, legal system to follow through and make people lose their job. However, you can do a lot of uh, useful things on the transparency, accountability, and participation side. And whatever project, the, the most useful way to implement a project is really to do a user-centered design and then uh, use a, a set of whatever uh, technology is most suitable in that particular context. It can be a combination of various technologies. Sometimes you want to combine machine learning to do some risk assessment for corruption cases. Uh, if you have a, sort of a case management system, you want to do use artificial intelligence or machine learning to create a, a risk score for, for each uh, case or transaction you're examining, and that can help direct the law enforcement resources to the right sort of cases. So that's a very helpful tool, also in um, illicit financial flows, also in resource governance, public finance, generally speaking. But yeah, blockchain is definitely not, not a panacea. And then there is one particular aspect in implement, implementing these projects. Uh, when you take the perspective of managing a software project, uh, you can either manage a centralized project or you can manage a decentralized project. And managing a centralized project is much, much easier, including especially updating centralized projects. Just imagine how much effort it takes to update uh, the protocol of the Bitcoin blockchain. That's basically almost impossible. You need to find a huge consensus to do that. Uh, it's almost comparable. One that many might be more familiar with is the fact that the email protocol has never changed, uh, really significantly changed over the past centuries because it's a decentralized protocol. It's, an, it's a consensus upon how emails are being transmitted from one server to the other. And because it's like that, and it's been always like that, and we, you need to be compatible with downward compatibility with all the other email receivers. That's why really encryption of emails did not really take off and uh, meaningful anti-spam me mechanisms didn't really take off. And that's all because it's so hard to update the email protocol. It's much easier if you have a centralized mechanism, for example, WhatsApp. It was basically overnight that WhatsApp introduced end-to-end uh, -end encryption to over a billion users. I mean, that's much easier to maintain a centralized project uh, and update it in that way rather than a decentralized one. So that's one of the drawbacks of maintaining a decentralized software project like blockchain. Maybe to give you an example, and one sort of very famous like corruption case in, in the um, blockchain or DLT space is yeah, the DAO hack, um, which I'm sure, you know, friends also, also know. So the DAO was the um, decentralized autonomous organization, which essentially was a crowdfunding mechanism that was built on the blockchain and basically wanted to get everybody to invest in this fund and then later democratically with everybody decide how to spend the money. And all this through a blockchain system that would get everybody votes and so on. But they had the problem that they got hacked. They had a security breach, a security issue. And overnight, like all the, all the money started flowing out. And we're talking all the money. This was the biggest crowdsourcing effort ever successful. They raised $150 million. And that money started suddenly flowing away and not being in the fund anymore. And they tried to fix this by just basically splitting, uh, splitting the fund into two and preventing this money from flowing off. But they couldn't get the votes fast enough to do that. They couldn't get everybody on board to fix this 
very important security breach. So in a bank, when a, if a bank would have noticed money flowing out, they would have just cut the account. They couldn't do that because of the decentralized nature. Yeah, so it's a bit of a trade-off between uh, avoiding tampering by, by distributing it and at the same time, at, at times, being uh, less efficient and, and, well, moving swiftly, um, as, as you describe. It's almost like, uh, you know, different political forms, right? Like the, the difference between the effectiveness of, uh, let's say, a more autocratic system that can easily implement changes compared to a democracy that tends to be slower and more deliberative. Actually, looking back to the Corona app is really also an example here, right? It took longer than if it was just implemented without, as you say, using open source, letting people comment and, and deliberate about it. Yeah, the, the key success factor for the Corona app is, is its uptake, like how many users are actually trusting this app to be using it. In the case, I think in China, there is another app which is very popular, not so much because of trust, but rather because you need it in order to use public transportation or in order to enter your workplace. So you can have that gatekeeper functionality and that encourages people to use the app. And in, our, in, in Germany, that would be unthinkable. And therefore, therefore actually, the, it was, a, it was a amazing pivot of the German government to switch from a centralized architecture that is compromising privacy towards a decentralized architecture using that Corona app. And, and that is very much privacy preserving. And, and the, the key drivers towards this decentralization and, and privacy preserving architecture was actually Apple and Google in a very surprising move. I mean, how come the tech giants from Silicon Valley are all of a sudden the ones that are protecting our privacy from our own governments? That's, that's a very unusual, historically unusual case. Yeah, but that's a great transition to, to another aspect that I wanted to touch on is uh, you mentioned uh, a citizen-centered approach, Franz, and, and Niklas, you mentioned that you should not implement a blockchain technology just for its own sake. So it should always be directly connected to a problem that it, that it should solve. So in very practical terms, directed to you, Franz, is at the blockchain lab at the GIZ, how does it usually work? So how do you start new projects you have probably cooperation partners all over the world but do you initiate the projects do you look at the problems in the specific countries or do the the organization come to you and say we have a problem here we might need your help and maybe you could help with your technical expertise well in the beginning in the early stages of the blockchain lab we reached out a lot to the tech community we did a couple of meetups on several uh, issues several topics to be solved we we filtered all the existing projects like a huge database of existing blockchain projects we filtered them according to our criteria do they make any sense for us or for the context of international cooperation and development what's the added value so we start with a lot of screening and analysis and so on to narrow our scope down to the sort of use cases that seem most promising to us. And then we reached out to the user base. And for that, it was extremely helpful for us to have GIZ basically having roughly 1,000 projects worldwide um, in the various different uh, stakeholder contexts. Some of them are on a subnational level, some at the national level, some at the multilateral level. And um, this huge diversity of sectors and, and stakeholders enabled us to get in touch uh, with those actors uh, that these use cases were most uh, suitable for. And in the, in the example of the education validation, uh, education credential validation project, the uh, partner we found was uh, Simeo Innotech, and that's an organization which is actually offering 
e-learnings themselves and, and physical learnings themselves. And at the same time, it's an intergovernmental organization of the ASEAN, of the Asian region, economic region, collaborating with the education ministries there. So we see this as a starting point for a wider deployment of, of uh, education credential validation infrastructure. Yeah, this is uh, another, I think, a, a very interesting point in time now to be discussing these issues because I feel like uh, with at least some people in our audience and our listeners, they might not really be familiar with it yet and not actually know that there are these technical solutions. But at the same time, I think, as both of you mentioned, we, we want to be a bit careful with creating too much hype around it, right? Like making people just uh, use blockchain because it's blockchain. Or I mean, uh, as, as Niklas already mentioned last week, we interviewed Iria Muskov and we discussed how, how they use machine learning and sort of flagging suspicious cases in, in public expenditures. And there's a general also hype around uh, artificial intelligence, right? As soon as you use that, there's another sort of buzz um, going on. So I was wondering if you could maybe comment on what type of research you would find most fruitful to accompany the implementation of these technological uh, solutions. Can we maybe start with you, Niklas, also maybe linking back to some of the insights you gained from the literature review that you recently published? Yeah, I mean, basically, if you look at the literature out there, we know a, a lot about like some individual projects and how they work in principle, and also some like quantitative evidence on how they might reduce corruption. We also have a lot of evidence that generally a positive association between lower corruption levels and uh, more ICT use, right? And this is documented. I think what is under research, what we don't really know is how individuals react to the use of technology. So what is it about technology that makes someone in a, let's say, a public servant or someone who is in a situation where they might bribe someone or receive a bribe or engage in corruption any other way. We don't know how this use of technology impacts them and how it impacts their decision to engage in a corrupt activity or not. I find that really interesting because does it make in itself a difference that they're sitting in, in front of a computer rather than in front of a person? Is it a difference because they know that this data is recorded or that they know that someone is going through the data later on. Is the recording important or is it that they know there's a mechanism afterwards and afterwards, otherwise they don't, they don't care. So that's something we, it's basically a black box. We don't know. And I think that will, their research would be really, really useful. And the other question is really what makes projects sustainable in the long run? Because what we see with, especially with these technology projects, they sort of come in waves, right? Like they come up a lot in a, at a certain time, like blockchain projects, as Fran said, came up in 2017 a lot. And some of them still exist. Some of them did not. And when you talk, for example, about specific projects that are often designed for anti-corruption, I think about six, seven years ago, we had a large amount of open data portals coming out. Like every administration, like so many min, uh, ministries or levels of government introduced a portal to just publish government data. And they often started with, I don't know, 100 data sets, updated them maybe for like half a year or so, and then the portal basically died down. And you can search the internet for dead open data portals, which have some data from like 2014, 2015 on them, but are not updated at all. But at, at the same time, other open data portals, they have some buy-in, they um, have people using them long-term, they also have people making something out of the data and showing that it's valuable, they are still there. But there we do, I don't think we know enough about what makes these projects being used in the long, long run and also makes them be active. 
And that's, for example, I would be really interested to see what comes out of Avios project because I checked that they, their Twitter account is still live, right? And they still they still work. But does this project still work in two or three years? And um, does it still sort of have an impact on how senators behave? Yeah, and, and how can you estimate the impact itself is also an interesting question, I think. But yeah, yeah I think they, they have overcome at least first hurdles by being blocked on Twitter. So I think that's a good sign. From your perspective, Franz, what, what do you think would be a good research? I mean, let's say you had to advise some junior researchers who are excited about that work. What would be research questions that, that would be useful? Yeah, I mean, you were mentioning the, the sort of the hype cycle of uh, new tech trends, whether it's AI or blockchain or IoT, name it, it's there, augmented reality and, 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 and so on. So uh, these hype cycles, they're much fueled by investor marketing. Basically, somebody is pushing up a new trend buzzword and uh, hoping to attract more investments in, in that particular technology. And it often it works quite well. And in the case of blockchain, it worked in particularly well because you had a new investment tool, which was uh, crypto tokens. And that, uh, that is one of the reasons why the hype curve, if you compare the AI hype curve versus the blockchain hype curve, the blockchain hype curve made it much steeper uh, curve in, in 2017 than maybe uh, other comparable technologies. And that has to do with investor marketing and, and crypto investment tools. So for us, of course, um, we're luckily, we're not funded by crypto tokens, but we are funded with uh, governmental funds for international cooperation and development. And therefore, for us, our priority is to make useful investment, to invest in the right things. And that's not an easy thing. I mean, even private investors, they don't manage. The public investors like, like us, uh, we need to have a good way to determine what makes sense to invest in and what not. And therefore, I would love very much to see research in, in the form of case studies uh, of the application of certain technologies in various fields that could, including result yield, um, yield results uh, in the form of saying this technology makes uh, a lot of sense in that context, or also the negative results. Also very helpful for us because then we don't need to invest over and over again in pilot projects uh, for the same approach that is anyways doomed to fail. So that sort of uh, research would indeed be very helpful for us to better direct our investment. Uh, one big aspect is uh, it will be an interdisciplinary research because context really matters. And a thorough understanding of the context that any technology is applied in really matters a lot for the outcome of the entire project. And um, so that, that would so meaning, meaningful research on this is case studies uh, uh, which are well contextualized and with a variety of, of scientific methodologies from the economic side, sociological side, maybe understanding the organization, maybe the legal framework, maybe um, a different set of methods, maybe interviews. And in particular, very valuable is, is interviewing the affected population, because that's not self-evident that every project is always taking that into account. That's very important, uh, taking that perspective. And then, so that's one thing. And the other big field of research I would like to see is looking in, into the future, which is always a bit hard. And also as a research methodology, it's, it's not, not that easy. So uh, one could possibly start uh, researching with a sort of scenario planning, how certain technology-driven developments would be turning out in the future. For example, if you take the big picture, how is digitalization going to play out in the globe? Are we going to see 
surveillance capitalism happening? <laughs> Are we going to see a state-centered uh, internet, state-controlled internet with new IP and lots of surveillance tech? Or are we going to have a much uh, a citizen-centered uh, based on citizens' rights and privacy, etc., future of the internet? So that would be that would be the big picture. But of course, you can find lots of more detailed question questions where scenario planning might be the starting point, and then you could elaborate from the legal perspective, from the economic drivers, etc., what will lead our future in that direction or this direction. One more project I would like to see is uh, the research question of uh, sustainable data management. Because Niklas was mentioning, we have uh, several data portals, open data portals that are be being abandoned after a while. So once they get funding and then you get you open some data sets and then they are, they are no longer used. So what are the determinants, what are the factors that influence uh, sustainability and actual use of data, not only so that the data generated is really demand-oriented and that it has a sustainable sort of funding operational and usage model. So, so for example, Wikipedia has found their usage model, their donation-financed donation uh, platform and they're crowdsourcing the content. Then you have very successful data management examples for example, in the European Environmental Agency, they're maintaining a lot of uh, environmental data uh, sources, or you have the Copernicus project, which is maintaining aerial imagery uh, repositories from satellite images, and they are publicly funded. So what are the different models of maintaining, sustainably maintaining uh, data sets that are being made available publicly? I believe that's a very important contribution to the research because essentially, I see that data as a public good is really um, is really going to be a big game changer. It has the potential to create a lot of value around the world. We we don't yet know exactly what are the right tools or the right operational models for these for these data um, data set management open data projects. We see that there's so much research to be done in the future. And I think what you just mentioned, it's just so fitting that some of the research questions that you addressed, really, they speak more to the social science aspect of those technologies and others are really, let's say, hardcore computer science research. And um, I think this is so fitting that we have uh, the two expertise on this podcast today, also from the computer science side and from the social science it's actually not that easy to find a common language to, to know what the other and discipline is talking about and to find a mutual understanding for the problems that arise in each, in each discipline. I would like to wrap up maybe on, on this note. So it was great to talk to both of you about very interesting topics on the intersection between computer science and, and social science and namely between blockchain technologies and anti-corruption. So thank you so much for taking the time today and uh, we look forward to to see what comes out of the blockchain lab uh, in the future of course thank you so much thank you very much thank you it was a pleasure that's it another episode of kickback the global anti-corruption podcast we hope you enjoyed that episode if you did please recommend the podcast to your friends Leave a good rating and review on wherever you get your podcasts and get in touch with us. You can do so by following us on Twitter at KickbackGap or on Facebook also with the handle at KickbackGap or you can send us an email. That's info at icrnetwork.org. See you next time.